0: This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is sponsored by Melville House Publishing, publishers of The Schreiber Theory, a radical rewrite of American film history by David Kippen, a wry attack on the auteur theory of moviemaking. Available in bookstores now or on the web at mhpbooks.com.
1: The galactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the Left Bank of New York City. It's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 11th of February, 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll be talking to New York Times reporter Warren St. John about his reporting of the J.T. LeRoy hoax. How did he get one of the main players to crack? We'll also talk to Jessa Crispin of Bookslet.com about the passing of two great feminist writers this week and who we should read now. Plus, we'll have the UK report from Mark Thwait of ReadySteadyBook.com. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, some absolutely shocking developments in the James Fry story this week. Everybody shut up. That's right. Not a word from Fry, his agent Cassie Abashefsky, his editor Sean McDonald, nor publisher Nantelais. In a stunning turn of events, each and every one of them spent the week quietly spending the megabucks they'd earned by lying and deceiving the public. That public returned the favor. Fry's sales, which totaled almost half a million books last month, collapsed to a mere, well... 39,000 books this week. Despite the bad sales news, however, everyone, everyone at Random House's New York office went out and got good and stinking drunk, celebrating the fact that not one person had asked any of the perpetrators of nanfiction if the story had anything to do with conglomerate publishing being all about nothing but the bottom line. So what were people talking about if they couldn't talk about a case of literary fraud, moral bankruptcy on the part of an author and a particularly cynical and disgusting brand of capitalistic greed in the publishing industry? Why, they were talking about a case of literary fraud, moral bankruptcy on the part of an author and a particularly cynical and disgusting brand of capitalistic greed in the book publishing industry? That's right, they were talking about J.T. Leroy. In a New York Times article by Warren St. John, Jeffrey Knup confessed that he and his longtime partner, Laura Albert, had made up the character of J.T. LeRoy, and that Canute's half-sister, Savannah Canute had played LeRoy in public appearances. For ten years, they kept up the ruse of the drug-addicted, HIV-positive child prostitute suffering in the aftermath of a transgender operation, but now, said Canoop, quote, the jig is up. I do want to apologize to people who were hurt. It got to a level I didn't expect, close quote. Canoop said he just couldn't take the stress of the hoax and what he called an all-consuming web of deceit, and he said he had separated from Laura Albert and was currently in a custody dispute with her over their son. He also said he'd hired an L.A. entertainment lawyer and had hopes for a movie deal, but he denied he was looking for a book deal. Meanwhile, while J. Fry and J.T. were... Being deservedly persecuted for lying in their works of nonfiction, a work of fiction was awarded for, well, not telling the truth exactly, the American Association of Petroleum Geologists gives out a journalism award every year for excellence in science writing. This year it was announced they were giving the award to Michael Crichton for his novel, State of Fear in which he dismisses global warming as a fraud and imagines a bunch of evil scientists using it for their own nefarious ends. A spokeslier for the petroleum geologist said, it is fiction, but it has the absolute ring of truth. That's a quote. Stephen Schneider, a Stanford University climatologist, told the New York Times the book is, quote, demonstrably garbage. Close quote. He said the geologists like it because, uh, quote, they are ideologically connected to their product, which fills up the gas tanks of Hummers. Close quote. Harvard geochemicist, uh, geochemist Daniel Schrag called the award, quote, a total embarrassment, said it reflects the politics of the oil industry and a lack of professionalism on the association's part. Close quote. He also noted, quote, I think it's unfortunate when somebody who has the audience that Michael Crichton has shows such profound ignorance. Close quote. Oh, wait till he reads timeline. But that's enough about literary frauds. Let's talk about political frauds. That's right, Scooter Libby's back in the news. The indicted former White House aide, chief of staff to Vice President Dick Cheney, and Gray Wolf Press pornographic novelist was reportedly on the verge of pulling a John Dean on his former employers at the White House. Reports on NBC News said Libby was going to tell the special prosecutor that it was none other than Vice President Dick Cheney who told him to out CIA agent Valerie Plame, thereby putting her life in danger because the Bush administration was angry at her husband for revealing they'd lied about the evidence used to start the Iraq war. Meanwhile, despite reported actual beatings by the special prosecutor, Libby was not giving up, who told him to write that childishly disgusting novel of his. Finally, a Times of London story reports, we are about to reach a momentous moment in the 1500-year anniversary of the English language. That moment is the creation of its millionth word. According to linguist Paul Payak, who works for something called the Global Language Monitor, the language is currently at 986,120 words, and we ought to get to number one million by about the middle of the year. According to Payak, English is the world's largest language by far because it's open to change and absorbent of other languages, unlike French, he says, which has had its purity guarded by the Académie Française. Payac says French only has 100,000 words as a result. Yeah, but none of them are freedom fries. And that's the news from the book world for this week. I'm Dennis Johnson.
0: It's Saturday, February 11th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is February 12th, and on that day in 1663, Cotton Mather was born. Mather is remembered today not so much for his books of sermons, but for his key role in instigating the Salem Witch Trials. He was convinced that, quote, an army of devils is horribly broken upon the place which is our center. He also warned that the last judgment was near at hand, and he portrayed himself as leading the final charge against the devil's legions. The 12th also marks the birthday in 1809 of Charles Darwin, author of The Origin of the Species. Happy birthday, Charles. On February 13th in 1991, Sotheby's auction house announced the discovery of a long-lost manuscript of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. The manuscript was the first half of Twain's original version, heavily corrected in his own hand. It was found when an L.A. librarian was sorting through some old papers sent to her when an aunt from upstate New York died. February 14th is Valentine's Day, and in 1842, it was the day of the Boz Ball, held by the New York elite to celebrate Charles Dickens' arrival in the U.S. for his five-month tour. Boz was an early Dickens pseudonym. Tickets were for the outrageous price of $10, and the event was completely sold out. Wednesday is February 15th, and on that day in 1980, playwright Lillian Hellman filed a lawsuit claiming $2.2 million in damages for libel against the novelist Mary McCarthy. Their feud had gone on for years. But when McCarthy went on the Dick Cavett Show and famously said that, quote, every word she writes is a lie, including and and the, Hellman sued. McCarthy died before the suit was settled. Thursday is the 16th, and that's the birthday in 1831 of Nikolai Leskov, a Russian journalist, novelist, and short story writer, best known to English readers for his Lady Macbeth of Minsk. He is considered by many the most Russian of all Russian writers. And Friday, February 17th, is the anniversary of the death in 1673 of French playwright Jean-Baptiste Pouculin, known as Molière. His plays, Tartuffe, The Misanthrope, and The School for Wives, continue to be performed today. He died at the age of 51, only hours after playing the lead in his last play, The Imaginary Invalid. I'm Valerie Marions, and that's this week in literary history.
2: This is Mark Thwaite, the UK correspondent for Moby Lives Radio a managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com. There seems to have been a lot of movement in the UK publishing world this week. Scott Pack, the head buyer at Waterstones and the person who, as head buyer, has inordinate amount of uh, influence over the books that we read here in the UK, has announced that he's leaving Waterstones to pursue other interests. He has denied suggestions that he was pushed from his job, either because of organisational changes at the bookseller, because we know what is afoot with Watsons and their interest um, as part of the HMV group in, in buying Oticus or because of his involvement with various book and trade-related blogs in recent months. Scott Pack has been going around a number of the blogs and been commenting on um, comments left about him on those blogs and has seemingly been um, taking great pleasure in seeing what's out there in the blogosphere. Um, but he's left left um, Watson's Ashead head by this week, suggesting that he may take a month or two off work in order to spend some time with his kids and his chickens. Just over a year after he was hired from the electrical goods chain Dixon's, WH Smith's commercial director Tim Clifford has lost his job. A result, so say WH Smith's, of the chain's decision to combine the commercial and marketing functions within their business. More changes in publishing um, this week when Hachette Livre The French publisher, um, and it's the first French publisher to cross the Atlantic and and buy um, American companies, um, has bought Time Warner Book Group's um, divested book interest this week. Um, It was seen as inevitable. Um, Time Warner were not that interested, it seems, in the book business. And Hachette Lever themselves have now stated their interest uh, interest in inquiring Simon & Schuster, the future of which has long been open to question. Wayne Rooney, uh, an English soccer player, has um, agreed an extraordinary five-book deal charting his life in football, which will earn him a a minimum of £5 million. Um, After an auction between um, two of the giants of the publishing world, HarperCollins and Random House, Harper was prepared to invest £5 million, and the contract is expected to be finalised by the end of the week, and the first book is due to be published in early autumn. An astonishing thing, this Wayne Rooney, um, a young footballer, only just in his twenties, um, and one can't imagine he has that much to say, really, beyond the fact that you know he was raised in a poor family in Liverpool, and now he plays for, for the biggest football um, club in the world, Manchester United, but nonetheless, he's um, he's managed to sort out this five million pound, five book deal. Finally, this week, um, a couple of items about the library world. Library world, a world I'm very fond of being a librarian myself uh, a public library book issued in 1945 in New Zealand has racked up an overdue fine of 9,000 New Zealand dollars so in um, British money that's three and a half thousand pounds the Punch Library of Humour book was borrowed from the library in Waterua, which is 288 miles north of the capital Wellington of New, um, capital of New Zealand Wellington 61 years ago but was recently found among the family's belongings um, Miss Sue Chame, um the lady who got the fine, was presented with the fine on her 85th birthday. But the library manager, Jane Gilbus, has said she'd be delighted to waive the charges in return for the privilege of displaying the book, which has been out for 61 years. Britain uh, has traditionally been a nation that's had a romantic reading habit, it is said, uh, if you look at the kind of books that we take out of British libraries. But new figures show that readers are turning to crime Gritty forensic novels of American writers such as Patricia Cornwell, James Patterson have gained popularity in British libraries um, over the past couple of years and compared with previous years when romantic fiction um, dominated the charts. This year, uh, Patricia Cornwell, Joseph Cox, John Grisham, they're the the top three. Then um, the Arga Saga novelist, um, Joanna Trollope, she comes in at fourth. Um, But James Patterson um, has got two other books and um, Big Bad Wolf on the third degree in the top ten and then the Scottish crime writer Ian Rankin um, comes in with a question of blood um, Catherine Cookson who for years um, was the top book taken out of British libraries doesn't even get a book in the top ten and um, b- between um, 1994 and 1995 um, 1999 2000 Cookson wrote nine out of the ten um, top most borrowed, borrowed books but she's dropped out of the top ten for the first time since records began. Only in 1984 the records began. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling was the most borrowed children's um, fiction title. The Public Lending Right, which was established in 1979 um, in, in the UK, means that writers get paid when their books are borrowed. So obviously this is terribly important for writers too, that they manage to get their books into, into the library chart. But it seems that Britain has, um, has moved to reading crime fiction. And I wonder what that says about the state of the British nation. No longer romantic. (laughs) Well, this is Mark Thwaite, the managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com, and I shall speak to you again very soon. Bye-bye now.
1: Jessica Crispin is on the line from the world headquarters of Bookslot.com in Chicago. Jessica, welcome back to Mobilis Radio. Thank you. Uh, I actually am starting off cheerfully, but it was a bad, uh, a bad week for the world of uh, feminist writing this 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 week, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, we we lost two of the majors, so it was really depressing. First it was Wendy Wasserstein, and. Um, and then, like a week later, it was Betty Friedan. Mm-hmm. So, it was bad week to be feminist.
1: Be- Betty Friedan actually died on her birthday, last Sunday. Um, but of course, readers will know uh, these two writers. Uh, Betty Friedan's major work, of course, came out in the early '60s: "The Feminist, uh, The Feminine Mystique." And Wendy Wasserstein, uh, maybe people know her better as a playwright, but she had also written. Uh, a wonderful book of essays called Shiksha goddess i don't know if you've read that one
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, but that was a terrific a terrific uh, collection uh, meant for the page not for the stage um, do you have uh, uh, other works of theirs you would recommend to readers
3: uh well the fordan you know, the uh Feminine mystique is of course you know the touchstone it's the the book that everyone reads in their <laughs> their first women's studies class um and Wasserstein was just an amazing playwright and I loved her plays mm-hmm. um, and that's pretty much what I've known her for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, she also wrote a movie, um, Object of My Affection, um, but it kind of pales in comparison to mm-hmm. everything she did for the stage. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, um, on Bookslut this week you have mentioned that uh, the best way perhaps to honor these great writers is to look at some other feminist writers that maybe haven't achieved quite as much fame and are deserving. Who did you recommend?
3: Uh, three writers. Uh, Laura Kipnis, uh, the author of Against Love and Bound and Gagged, um, Leslie Canold, the author of The Abortion Myth and What's No Baby, and <laughs> um, and then Susan Faludi, who is probably the best known of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote Backlash and Stiffed.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, let's take them one at a time. Let's start with Faludi, the one that may be the most familiar to folks. Uh, Backlash was was quite a big book, as was Stift. Uh, First of all, are there other books of hers that people should know about?
3: Um, I'm still waiting on her next book, and it's been very frustrating. It's been, I think, eight years or so since Stift came out. Um,
1: And it's just those two?
3: Just those two. Uh, Mm -hmm. Backlash was, I think, the first of the... Major you know, feminist books that I read that I wasn't comp- totally rolling my eyes at every every <laughs> paragraph. Um, she's very straightforward. She mm-hmm. doesn't exaggerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stift, I think, is just a tremendous book. And everybody keeps talking about this Nora Vincent book, this uh, self-made man when mm-hmm. she dresses up like a man, right? Um, which is so gimmicky and really kind of shallow and her perceptions of what masculinity means or anything like that. And Stift is such a superior book that uh, every time anybody mentions Norvins it, I'm like, you have to be reading Stift.
1: Mm-hmm. What is Stift about? Is it, is it something uh, it, similar?
3: It's a collection of um, different aspects of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So there is uh, like a chapter on the Promise Keepers, um, which were really big when the book came out. And then, you know, about... Um, uh, factory workers and just different aspects of how um, the tradition of masculinity is not being um, rewarded anymore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and kind of what's ca- taking its place.
1: Well, I know when I read Susan Flutie, uh I read Backlash, and one of the things I really admired about her writing was there was a real fearlessness there, which I suppose you have to have if you're a feminist writer, but she was uh, it was no holds barred examination of uh for example lots of products uh, and how they're aimed at women and um, uh, just all the kind of gender biases that aren't readily apparent uh, uh she was she was on the attack and it was fascinating stuff
3: yeah, and it's much more even handed than say you know Naomi Wolf or someone mm-hmm. like that, which mm-hmm. I always really appreciated about her
1: well she's got a really high uh high level of intellectualism and at the same time she's uh She's a a journalist and writing in in a way that makes sense for the average reader. Uh, Let's move on to one of the other writers. Uh, Let's see, is it Laura Knold? Is that her first name, Laura? Leslie. Leslie. Uh, I'm completely unfamiliar with her. What what can you tell me about her?
3: She is actually an Australian feminist Mm -hmm. um, who, uh, last year, uh, her book, um, The Abortion Myth, was Mm -hmm. published in America. Mm -hmm. It had been published several years before in Australia. And it kind of was released to dead air. It uh, really didn't get any sort of traction because a lot of the uh, feminist magazines just trashed it when mm-hmm. it first came out. Mm-hmm. And what
1: did they have against it?
3: They, Leslie really has this different sort of viewpoint on abortion, which is we have to start talking about the morality of the issue because a lot of women in the pro-choice movement don't want to talk about morals because they don't think that they can win that argument Mm -hmm. and leslie really sort of bullet pointed this is how we still have a fight Mm -hmm. this is still you know if we bring morals into the situation we still have ground to stand on Mm -hmm. and so a lot of the miz magazine accused her of being too intellectual and not being on the ground enough Mm -hmm. and um being that she's worked in the movement for you know years and years and years, mm-hmm. and interviewed so many women who had had abortions, it seems like a very odd criticism.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was her? F- that was her first book. Was uh, I think you mentioned the second title for her?
3: Uh, yeah, What No Baby. <laughs> it still is not uh, released in America, but you can uh-huh. get it through um, you know the various Amazons. Uh, I think it's uh, Amazon UK. You can get it on, uh-huh. um, which is about how. The birth rates are dropping in the Western world, Uh and why that is, because it's become, even though it's very trendy to have a baby as an accessory Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to, as a woman, structure your life around it, Mm -hmm. and so it takes on a lot of those
1: issues. And again,
3: I I don't understand why it's not (laughs) getting a lot of high-profile attention, but um, you have to kind of seek it out.
1: Yeah, sounds like something a small yet chic independent publisher should look into. Absolutely. Um, and our third writer that you mentioned.
3: Yes, Laura Kipnis.
1: Yes. Tell yes. us about her.
3: She's actually um, from Chicago or Northwestern and she has written, well, her first book was Bound and Gagged, which is like on a small university press and didn't get a lot of attention. And then two years ago she came out with Against Love, a polemic, and um, it got a lot of attention a lot of... Um, sort of uh, defensive reviews
4: mm-hmm.
3: of, uh, from people who are married and want to make sure everybody knows just how happily married they are because it's kind of a screed <laughs> against um, the pressures of monogamy uh-huh. um, but she also writes for Slate which is where she's been, she's been writing pretty consistently for them re- reviewing feminist books and talking about feminist issues because uh, her book isn't sort of a a great feminist work
4: mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. The, her
3: work on Slate really hints that I think she has a book in her about feminism I really want her to write it
1: mm-hmm. and is Bound and Gagged uh, similar I mean are they both about, uh, about marriage or
3: uh, well Bound and Gagged because she teaches um, arts and culture at, at Northwestern mm-hmm. is about uh, women on film
1: mm-hmm. okay well now, you mentioned that, uh, that that book was from a uh, University Press, and I know Susan Faludi, of course, is publishing with the, uh, with the big publishers, uh, the conglomerates in New York. Who's publishing uh, Canold's book or not publishing it? I know this, uh, you mentioned uh, she did have one released here, though, um, who's publishing against love uh, what, are these coming out of the big houses or, or who's paying attention to these matters
3: um, Canold's book uh, The Abortion Myth was on Westland mm-hmm. and so um, the, the sort of like, academic feminist work I don't think has that much place in big publishers anymore mm-hmm. um, it's kind I of mean, surprising
1: th- isn't it I mean Faludi's books sell quite well
3: Yeah, but it's been a while, and I think it's changed since then. Uh, There really hasn't been a whole lot of um, feminist literature that's worth anything lately. I mean, you know, like the Nora Vincent book was on Viking, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it really is sort of not that great, and it has the gimmick. So, Mm
4: -hmm. you
3: know, I I guess it would get people's attention. Oh, she dressed up like a man
4: for Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. year.
3: Um, But, yeah, the they're really it's the smaller presses that are doing the more uh, impressive publishing of feminist work
1: mm-hmm. any other writers you feel we should flag for the listeners
3: um, you know I, I'm i interested in Jennifer Baumgarten mm-hmm. uh, Gardner and um, so far her books make me more angry than
4: uh, <laughs> nodding
3: but some of the articles she's been writing lately for like Ms. Magazine and places um, have me thinking that I might finally be yeah. able to accept her. Yeah.
1: What about from the? Uh, what about in fiction? Who's who's writing about uh, writing from a feminist perspective in fiction that you would recommend?
3: Uh, two writers right now, I would say Catherine Davis, uh, who wrote *The Thin Place*, and Gina Frangello, who wrote *My Sister's Continent*.
4: Mm-hmm. Both
3: are um, from a women's perspective, but not in that sort of annoying Oprah way. Mm-hmm. And both just tremendous books.
1: Well, Jessica Crispin, these sound like uh, great suggestions, a way to get over uh, our grief at losing two great feminist writers in the past week, but uh, it's nice to know their work carries on. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Jessica. Thank you so much. You as well. Here are a couple of letters from this week's mailbag we heard from Sometime Mobile Lives contributor Christopher Allen Waldrop, the librarian from Nashville, Tennessee. He writes in about our story concerning the couple in Seattle that was suing a Scholastic company book club because it had sent them books they hadn't ordered, they'd returned and they were still being expected to pay for it. Christopher Allen Waldrop writes in, The news about Scholastic expecting parents to pay for books they never ordered hit a nerve with me as a librarian because it's something I've had to put up with on occasion. Anyone who gets anything they haven't ordered should know about U.S. Title Code 39, Section 3009, subsection B, which states that it, quote, may be treated as a gift by the recipient who shall have the right to retain, use, discard, or dispose of it in any manner he sees fit without any obligation whatsoever to the sender, close quote. Subsection D defines unordered merchandise as, quote, merchandise mailed without the prior express request or consent of the recipient. Close quote. We also heard about our discussion with David Kippen, the Director of Literature at the National Endowment for the Arts. We talked about turning books into movies, and J.A. Pack of Oxford, England writes in, I enjoyed so much your interview with David Kippen. He's so radio-friendly, I hope he makes a return. On the subject of lovingly faithful adaptations, could you please remind Mr. Kippen of Faye Weldon's wonderful adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? She wrote it for the BBC in 1980, I believe. Well, Mr. Pack, consider it done. If you want to write into Moby Lives Radio, you can write to Moby at MobyLives.com. Please try and keep it under a million words and give me at least a vague hint of how to pronounce your name. I have Warren St. John of the New York Times on the line. Uh, Warren St. John, welcome to Mobilis Radio. Thanks so much for having me on. I wanted to ask you about, uh, well, actually, your two-part story, uh, your, your two stories, breaking the, the J.T. LeRoy hoax. Um, first of all, you had a sensational scoop this week when you got one of the three people involved in the hoax to fess up. Um, how did you get... Uh, Jeffrey Canoop to come clean.
5: Well, I'd been um, communicating um, through sort of back channels with uh, Jeffrey for some time, making it clear that I, um, I wanted to speak to him about his role. And um, there were a lot of complications. He has um, he has a couple of attorneys. Uh, one in a child custody um, situation that's uh, being handled in San Francisco. Uh, court and another entertainment lawyer, and the there were just a lot of complicating issues. I think he wanted to tell his story.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: He, um, I think he felt he was eager to distance himself from some of this. In fact, it moved out in late November, early December, mm-hmm. um, in large part, he said, because of the stress called, caused by trying to maintain this lie. And um, so he wanted to tell the story, but I think he just had some. Restrictions on his ability to do so, without, in his attorney's opinion, um, jeopardizing some aspects of his his custody case. Mm-hmm. And once they got past
1: that hurdle, then um, then he was ready to to speak freely. So the stress got so great that it that it broke up this uh, long term relationship he had with Albert. Right. That's
5: that's exactly what he said to me. Um, of course, Laura Albert isn't speaking to anyone. For right. Commented so. We don't know what her side of that story is, but at least uh, Jeff has been on the record and has been telling friends for some time that um, that he lived in a in a web of deceit mm-hmm. and that required um, required obviously him to keep a number of secrets um, that he found onerous. But also, um, family members were in on it and mm-hmm. were aware of it and mm-hmm. felt un- they felt burdened by something that didn't really involve them. And of course, they were. Uh, resentful of him for putting him in that position and he just realized he said over time that he had essentially um, drawn so many people in uh, that he couldn't couldn't bear it anymore and he Mm -hmm. just sort of blurted it out.
1: Well it was interesting to me that he was willing to confess to you because I'm sure a big part of his stress was your original article which broke the fact that JT Leroy was actually was a hoax
5: well that's that that may be the case, and I'd actually been on the story for some months before mm-hmm. i, I mm-hmm. probably spoke to um oh I'm guessing somewhere around seventy five people um mm-hmm. and including just, the
1: supposed j t leroy way back when that's true
5: and um and cousins and band members and nightclub owners where the band had played and mm-hmm. i mean really the the strategy was to call anyone who might have any information whatsoever and the the net, the net's just net the net of people just kept growing
1: let's go back to your first article where you did a profile for the times of jt Leroy what was that like you're one of the few who can say they actually spoke to the person who was who was claiming to be j t Leroy you went through uh, you know i assume the formal interview process of contacting the sure. publicist, et cetera well,
5: it's uh in retrospect it's you know it's a pretty it's it's a pretty funny story and mm-hmm. i say that without um you know uh, in any way, diminishing the you know, seriousness of being duped, um which I certainly was, but um, I basically got an assignment on a tuesday morning um volunteered i mm-hmm. I'd, i think I'd maybe heard of j. T. Leroy, but mm-hmm. I didn't really know anything about him, mm-hmm. but we had a we had an assignment needed a reporter, and it sounded crazy and strange and interesting, and I jumped right in and I read the books in a day and read a bunch of clips, and then the next day went out and met. J.T. Leroy and um, his chaperone, who was introduced to me at the time, is uh, Emily Fraser. Mm-hmm. She spoke with an English accent, a kind mm-hmm. of c- Cockney accent, and we went for a sushi lunch. At and she was
1: she was what? She was from the publisher, or?
5: Uh, no, she was uh, Laura Albert. <laughs> it was Laura Albert <laughs> pretending to be Emily Fraser <laughs> sitting next to Savannah Canute pretending uh-huh. to be J.T. Leroy. Uh-huh. There were a lot of layers yeah. um, to the deception. Of course, that may, that's what made it ultimately pretty difficult to to unravel. In my case, I did call just to kind of make sure I was, I was dealing with some kind of level of reality. I called a literary agent who I knew to be... Um, Reputable uh, Iris Silverman. I called Dr. Terrence Owens, the psychologist who had treated J.T. Leroy, and, and both assured me that uh, any rumor that J.T. wasn't who he seemed to be was um, just malicious. So uh, even back then, you were suspicious. Well, there had been there had been questions about his identity in the past, um, but there had been specific rumors that it was Dennis Cooper or that it right. was Mary Gates Gill. Mm-hmm. Um And those authors adamantly denied that was the case. Mm -hmm. So it sort of seemed like every rumor had kind of fallen apart. Mm -hmm. Um, But no one had quite put together that maybe that person standing right there with J.T. Leroy at so many press appearances was the person behind him. Mm
4: -hmm. And -hmm. that was
5: ultimately um, what Stephen Beachy um, sort of circumstantially proved in the New York Magazine piece that appeared October of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, But it Back to the the lunch it was sort of funny because I think Laura and J T or Laura and Savannah um were qu- quite known for their ability to um to get free stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and at the lunch, um, which of course, you know, was paid for by the New York Times, they <laughs> ordered oh probably a hundred and fifty dollars worth of sushi. And <laughs> That's a lot of sushi. had um <laughs> had what they could at the table, and then asked the waiter to pack up the rest to go. So they left with (laughs) enough sushi for a, uh, you know, a a, a party in their hotel room, which I'm sure they then had. Um, But...
1: So uh, the greed knows no bounds. Well, well what, at the
5: time, you you think to yourself, well, he's, you know, he's a poor kid that he's probably enjoying.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. he probably
5: didn't have a lot of sushi growing up in truck stops in uh-huh, West Virginia.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, well, I, I would imagine that could have been true. Uh, well, what happened after you, you know, you broke the bombshell, which was, what was that article? It was, what, last November, December?
5: Um. Actually, the Savannah story was in January, okay. January ninth.
1: Now, so, what happened in the immediate
5: aftermath of that? I think, I think most people at that point I think you know I think I think the the Beachy piece in, in last fall in New York um certainly made a powerful case. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that it left a lot of questions, for example, right. who was J. T. Leroy. Right. You, and there were a number of people who I interviewed after the Beachy piece who they just couldn't believe it. They had spent too much time with this this person, uh, face to face um, to believe that it wasn't a boy and it wasn't a kid from West Virginia and mm-hmm. so forth and so on and mm-hmm. there are people who are absolutely adamantly in denial mm-hmm. even at that point point. Mm-hmm. and ultimately um, we've located this picture of Savannah online of course I'd spent the day with JT before so when I saw the picture of Savannah I knew exactly who it was Right. and I sent the photograph to other people um, and said who is this and if it was a Someone who knew J.T. Leroy, they would say, that's, that's J.T. Leroy. And if it was someone who knew Savannah Canoop, they would say, well, that's Savannah Canoop, mm-hmm, my mm-hmm, friend. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, these two worlds didn't overlap um, at all. Mm-hmm. And um, and the reaction was, I think at that point, most people realized, wow, this has been a, an incredibly um, amazing 10-year uh, deception
1: mm-hmm. well i 'm particularly intrigued as to how the um, the publishing people involved the agents the editors uh, may be responding in the wake of of that story because uh, this took a very dark and ugly turn in the way that they manipulated um, um, oh, all kinds of very very hot button social issues they said that uh, jt. Leroy was suffering from AIDS was uh, going through the difficulties of transgender operations and et cetera. How do the people you talk to for uh, uh, for the to follow up on the story how do they respond to that what do they what do they say about all that now
5: well, it's interesting um you know I was just speaking to a, a friend about this very issue and you know in the episodes of uh Punk'd, on a mm-hmm. MTV, mm-hmm. you know, when the, the hoax is revealed, the etiquette says that you're supposed to laugh and say, that was a good one, you got me. Um, and indeed, a lot of people, I think, have reacted that way. They just say, wow, this is too bizarre, it's mm-hmm. too weird for me to even get angry about. Mm-hmm. But um, I think a lot of people who gave a lot of their time um, to someone they thought was uh, a, a drug, you know, addicted and now recovered HIV-positive young man with a horrible family past. I think they were less forgiving, and Iris Silverberg has been pretty adamant on the record that he felt that this was um, uh, sort of sinisterly uh, conceived Mm -hmm. um, scam to play on uh, the best instincts of a lot of people who thought they were helping someone, Mm -hmm. helping someone out.
1: Iris Silverberg is Uh,
5: the former agent of J.T. Leroy and the agent of Dennis Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, who originally uh, took the first correspondence that we know of from mm-hmm. Terminator, who eventually became J.T.
1: LeRoy. Right, the T the, the was for Terminator. That's right. And uh, who also spoke to you for your most recent filing, uh, the, the Confession of Jeffrey Knup. Um So he is apparently one of the people trying to stay engaged with the story and have reality.
5: Yeah, I think you really, yeah. like a lot of people... Um, and did a lot of work that mm-hmm. he might not have done mm-hmm. um, on, beh- on behalf of someone. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that, that's, you know, the one thing you can't get back in your life is time. You can mm-hmm. probably get mm-hmm. back money. You can get back a lot of things. But when you spend a lot of time working on someone's behalf, mm-hmm. um, and it turns out to be um, a deception like this, mm-hmm. I think it's um, something you don't feel like you'll ever
1: quite recoup, perhaps. Right. Uh, Warren, where's this story going to go? Uh, is is Laura Albert going to come clean? Is is uh, uh, JT, the character that played JT, which is is, is, is uh, Knoops' uh, what half sister, uh, is she going to speak to you? Um, Basically, i um, at this point.
5: Uh, Laura is not speaking. Mm-hmm. Savannah is not speaking. Um, I have you know reason to believe that they will try in some way to see if they can kind of continue this in some way, maybe mm-hmm. even, um, maybe they don't feel they need people to believe in the hoax anymore, but they could, they hope to still continue it. Um, so I don't anticipate Laura Albert ever admitting her role in this, but I, mm-hmm. I could be wrong.
1: But she wants to keep writing somehow in this character.
5: I think so. And uh-huh. I think that's going to certainly be problematic. I mean, i Went back and started rereading "The Heart Is Deceitful uh, Above All Things" the other day, and knowing who wrote it, um, and especially knowing the motives of the person who wrote it for adopting the voice mm-hmm. uh, and the diction and everything else, um, I have to say it was—I I found myself laughing out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, it completely lost, I think, a lot of what um, I—at least I thought was was there originally, and it became a kind of. Um, silly mm-hmm. exercise and kitsch, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think it's going to be pretty tough to um, to write in that voice and um, have any kind of uh, credibility. Um, just with a reader, I don't mean credibility in the sense of journalism, but you know, novels require you, they have to be artful enough that right. you that you're drawn in and you believe mm-hmm. the story um even as you know rationally it had to be fiction that's mm-hmm. the magic mm-hmm. of uh, fiction writing mm-hmm. and knowing what we know now it's it's pretty hard to perform that that mm-hmm. bit of mental um you know acrobat work um to to read the books mm-hmm. the old way
1: well, I know in your articles you've you've mentioned a couple times trying to talk to Savannah, and she it sounds like it just hangs up the phone. What about Laura Albert? Have you been able to talk to her directly at all?
5: Uh, let's see. Laura hung up on me this week when I called for a um, comment on the. Uh, on Jeffrey Knup's mm-hmm. confession mm-hmm. and uh, through an attorney declined to comment. Mm-hmm. So I know she got my messages mm-hmm. um, and, and declined to respond to an email message and Savannah declined to respond to voicemail messages. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, one slightly disturbing element of all of this seems to be that uh, Savannah Knup, um at least seems to be adhering to the same strategy as Laura mm-hmm. where her half-brother um, is trying to come clean, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a mm-hmm. that's a telling
1: uh, difference. Frankly, and you believe he's sincere, or is he trying to sell a movie? Um, probably, you know, some of both. Mm-hmm. I think um,
5: I think he. I got the sense that he genuinely feels badly. Now, does that absolve him of responsibility for helping to perpetrate this thing? I I I don't know. People can decide that for themselves. But
4: mm-hmm.
5: I did get the sense that he felt. Trapped, he felt like he was in a sort of claustrophobic world of deceit mm-hmm. that was not. He was not very good at with at at withstanding, and I yeah. think for a long time, I think he thought of it as a kind of a gag.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, but they were promoting
1: it, their rock band, I think, as that's you right, mentioned were earlier. Promoting
5: his music and her writing, mm-hmm. and it, it seemed relatively harmless. Um, but I think it got to a really profoundly disturbing level. I mean, I interviewed a gentleman. A uh, movie producer who said that J.T. Leroy got on the telephone with him and uh, threatened to commit suicide mm-hmm. um, because he had his his computer had broken and he couldn't write. This is what J.T. Leroy told mm-hmm. this uh, film producer,
4: mm-hmm.
5: and um, the film producer was of course horribly disturbed and uh, ended up buying a sixteen hundred dollar Hewlett Packard computer and sending it to J.T. Leroy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thinking, you know, maybe this is what he needed to not kill himself,
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's
5: a level of kind of um, that's a level of psychological um, manipulation that I think would make um, make anyone uncomfortable.
1: Mm-hmm. Two final questions: Do you think uh, are you still on the story? Is is there something to follow? Is somebody like that going to pursue J.T. Leroy in any way, or I is think, there any story you know, I left? I
5: think I am on the story. I don't I don't know what developments. Um, there are left. I, mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely Laura will will say anything. Of mm-hmm. course, that could change. Um, I'm not sure that if uh, she did say something, it would be through me, mm-hmm. um, since I probably caused her a bit of a headache. Um, so there are some implications to some of this, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to stay on that and, and see where it goes for the mm-hmm. publishers mm-hmm. and film companies and others who've uh, done business deals with a person that turns out not not to exist
1: right? Um, and and we'll see where that goes well then my final question is just this comes um, in in a time period when we are having some really uh, major scandals breaking out in the publishing industry about fraudulent uh, writers and writing where does this fit in with the other ongoing stories the the James Fry scandal and the scandal revolving around the writer known as Nas right I think um,
5: you know it's interesting My, my guess is and the tendency is to say, well, these things are sort of bunched up and therefore it's a, some sort of trend. Um, I think this has probably always gone on to some degree and mm-hmm. I think that the tools for verifying things um, have gotten more advanced. I mean, I identified Savannah Canute through a Google search mm-hmm. when I saw her photograph mm-hmm. and that was not an option available to a, a mm-hmm. sleuth right. you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, that's one thing. I think the Fry um, situation was really a case of kind of garden variety embellishment and fabrication. I think the Leroy thing is um, a much more operatic, um, bizarre um, kind of deception because Mm -hmm. it really involved a lot of face-to-face lying. Mm -hmm. It wasn't simply lying through the page. It Mm -hmm. was really manipulating people when you were staying in their homes mm-hmm. when you were talking to them face to face over sushi mm-hmm. um, and just the idea that they could have a, a stand-in a human stand-in who didn't get um, who didn't get busted along the way for ten, for for half of the 10 years it seems like is, is astonishing mm-hmm. so um, it, I, somehow that makes it seem different to me and of course J.T. Leroy was writing fiction so the the, the the non-fiction right. fiction issue is not really there it's right. more about this other type of
1: deception right well Warren St. John of the New York Times thank you for coming on Mobiles Radio
5: thanks so much for your interest in the story
1: and that's our show for this week thanks to our guest Jessa Crispin who spoke to us from the world headquarters of Bookslut.com which are located in Chicago Illinois Thanks to Warren St. John, who spoke to us from the world headquarters of the New York Times, which are located, interestingly enough, in New York City. Thanks to our UK correspondent, Mark Swaite of the great literary website, ReadySteadyBook.com. And while I'm at it, thanks to whoever the hell was pounding on the heating system pipes throughout the show, as well as our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and the crew here at Melville House, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher, Valerie Marions. We'll be back next week. I hope you will too. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.